What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Michael Brooks. We have an awesome show ahead for you today. Uh, Later, we will be uh, doing our usual SALT segment, and Democrats are the target. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well, Anna. I'm very, very excited to talk about the Democratic leadership's Coming to America uh, (laughs) sartorial choices with you. I mean, look, so in general, I think, you know, a lot of us are are exhausted. I'll, I'll say, um, especially last week when, you know, uh, definitely not as much as many others, but I was going out and, uh, and, and, and doing some, some demonstrating. Like, Corona was the last thing on my mind, and now it is very much up in my mind. I've like I, really? I had like three weeks. I had three months of taking Corona ultra seriously, and then I felt like I basically forgot about it for two weeks, and now I'm back to remembering it. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of on the same boat. Partly because you're seeing a spike in various states that open too early, and it's terrifying because there's the economic factor to it that isn't being discussed nearly enough. Congress seems to have given up completely when it comes to stimulus. And we have a complete and utter economic disaster coming up in the fall with all of these uh, stimulus programs, like the more robust version of unemployment, coming to an end. So I don't know what's going to happen to all these people who aren't going to be able to obviously pay for their rent, their health care, food on the table for themselves and their kids. And, you know, part of me thinks that some of the unrest that's taking place right now has relieved members of Congress because they don't have to discuss some of the difficult economic questions that are coming up. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I actually just interviewed Cedric Johnson, who is another scholar that I admire a lot. And I I think what what he said was like the, obviously the core of the demonstrations and what sparked it is police violence, racism, and all of the constellation of economic and political issues around that. And then he also, to to him, was like, yeah, I think these are also less formally and in the back end. He's like, these are also the first, like, Trump-era bread riots. Like, we're in a depression. Uh, There's no serious systemic help that's being provided at all. And of course, even before we were in a you know pandemic slash depression with over 40 million jobs lost, we already were in an economy that was absolutely brutal and just simply did not work for the vast majority of people. So, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think, um, you know, this is another thing. And, and, you know, we'll get to it later. We're also going to have Shama Sawant on from the Seattle City Council, which is going to be our interview today. We're really excited about that is. Does this uprising and these movements go to actual serious systemic change in policing um, and then all of the constellation of issues that are connected to it? Or does it become, you know, the latest iteration of like sort of middle class HR politics, um, which isn't going to deal with the next wave of things that are coming at us? And I, I don't know, Anna, it's like we're in a failed state. I mean, it's just oh, wild. Sure. Like, I mean, I, you know, and 
That's been the case for a long time in many, many different ways. But I still think that like on a basic governing level, even the most cynical uh, would still be like, wow, okay, we're going to have a pandemic and a depression and we're just simply not going to have any systemic response to it other than like an over $4 trillion tr uh, slush fund for the wealthiest companies in the world, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And for all the Democratic members of Congress who are engaging in their performative politics, in their th political theater, and pretending as though they're outraged about the lack of transparency by Steve Mnuchin when it comes to the $500 million that they, no, billion dollars that they gave him um, in order to dole out to corporations, that's the way the bill was written. They signed on for that. They can't pretend like Steve Mnuchin is like breaking some rule or some regulation they empowered him to take, again, $500 billion and give it out to, who knows, probably to companies that are associated with the Trump family, probably companies that are associated with his friends, with his own family. I mean, there's no transparency because there didn't need to be transparency based on how that law was written. And he said and explicitly mm -hmm. yesterday or the day before, right? He's like, I'm not. I'm not going to tell right? you. It's a question of privacy. Right. Do you think when you talk to people in your circle, in your world who are, you know, normies or not as politically in tune, whatever, it, is there like, is it shifting in terms of like how they think about these things and what's on their mind or no? Honestly, um, I'm really sad to report that no, uh, there is just a... There's a mountain, a mountain of propaganda, misinformation, fear-mongering, and it's nonstop, nonstop. I mean, the emphasis on looting in the beginning of these protests blows my mind when, you know, you just take a step back and you look at the bigger picture and you realize where the looting has been happening, right? It's just... The, the criminality that they fear-monger about has been happening on the street, on Wall Street, and there have been no criminal uh, prosecutions, consequences, none of that. Those laws have been broken. The fraud that was committed, which led to 2008, and then we bailed out those big banks and those big companies. Like That's the kind of looting that people should be concerned about. But it's, it's incredible how difficult it is to like deprogram people who unfortunately have been consuming the propaganda in mass media. It's really, really hard to convince them otherwise. Totally. So, and, and you know, the whole thing about defunding the police is such a bad idea because we need the police to protect us. Okay, well, fine, let's concede to that. But then let's take a look at where the resources have been spent and what type of crime has been focused on. Gavin Newsom literally had to pass a law in the state of California to force the police to actually test the rape kits that have been piling up over the decades. I mean, what the hell? Like, we've been increasing the police budget year after year after year, even as all these other programs in Los Angeles, for instance, have been cut. Education, consistently dealing with cuts, right? We keep giving the police more money, and what, they can't, they can't investigate rape? Absolutely. So what are they investigating? I mean, they've become regressive tax collectors. Yeah, they're That's regressive tax collectors and they're policing, you know, essentially poor communities, working communities and communities of color to uh, to set the context 
um, for gentrification, for all of these other, you know, uh, uh, and, and just like the basic context that we have chosen as a policy course to not do anything about any of these issues and then just sort of use state violence as a source of revenue collection and also, uh, you know, to terrorize people. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting and, and something that people, you know, it's the fight is so serious because on one hand where, uh, you know, people with the more, uh, like with the abolish critique are right, is that all of this stuff that gets trotted out, like, oh, there needs to be more implicit bias training and da 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 that doesn't work. That does not get to the core of the problem. That does not uh, lessen the rate of murder and violence. And I mean, again, just even like literal, essentially police terrorism we've seen the last couple of weeks with these demonstrations. And even the strategy, by the way, to allow looting to happen in certain places mm. as the context so you can go and rush at and crack heads on demonstrators. But, you know, and then on the other hand, I think, yeah, like the uh, the the defund question is really interesting because then it's like, OK, if we're talking about, first of all, that we have to get rid of a whole and we'll talk about this more later, get rid of the war on drugs, get rid of broken windows policing, all of these like actual systems reforms, as well as, of course, enhancing civil rights law and doing work like that, of course. But then you get you have to get into the distribution question. And then on the other hand, I think, you know, get to this other paradox that, again, I'll be talking about him later that, you know, Cedric Johnson kind of highlighted of of on one hand and what the response is to is this massive race and class driven over policing and totalitarianism, like literal anti-democracy. And then actually with certain serious crimes like rape, murder, an enormous amount of basically under resource and lack of taking seriously in the same communities that are terrorized for bullshit. So, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot to, to tease out here. Um, and I think, yeah, we need to get really, really serious when we go to the policy phase, because, of course, this could turn into just another wave of privatization and austerity or, you know, toothless reforms that, as an example, people point out, Minneapolis did a lot of these things. And here we are. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so why don't we uh, do some of our commentary on uh, what's been going on in the country? And, you know, I have I'm actually shocked that more people aren't focusing on why our local police departments are militarized and what we can do to prevent it. And honestly, all of the proposals I've seen from members of Congress have been uh, quick fixes to a problem that has led to symptoms and they want to just deal with the symptoms, you got to deal with the root of the problem. So let's discuss it a little bit. So there's been a lot of talk about reforming the police, defunding the police, and these discussions are important. They need to happen. But one thing that I think most Americans can agree on is that if you look at the type of policing that's taking place during these protests, the type of weaponry that's used, the type of supplies that local police departments have at their disposal look very similar to the type of weaponry that's used by the military abroad. And, you know, I think a lot of Americans have turned a blind eye to the actions of our government abroad and how we've been terrorizing black and brown people in various countries throughout the world for a long time now. 
And that has had a boomerang effect. And the incentive structure to engage in these wars has now led to weapons and all sorts of military material coming back to our own country and being used against us. And it's being done by a program that started decades ago known as the Pentagon Program 1033. Um, And what it does is it takes surplus from the military, and that includes tanks, grenade launchers, all sorts of weaponry, and um, basically invests it back into local police departments. Now, local police departments don't have to pay for it. It's it's like a, a, a donation program, essentially. But we, the U.S. taxpayers, do pay for it by funding the wars that we engage in abroad. And these wars have, of course, uh, made weapons manufacturers and uh, private military contractors a ton of money. So I want to talk a little bit more about what uh, 1033 is and then kind of walk you through how this has negatively impacted uh, policing in America and how it's just not enough to simply say, we're going to stop transferring these weapons to local police departments. We need to deal with U.S. foreign policy as well, because if you see uh, what's going on throughout the country and you believe that it's unconscionable, good, you should believe it's unconscionable, you should feel that way, but consider the fact that our actions towards civilians abroad are actually much worse and much more vicious, violent, and dangerous. So uh, I think Vox had a very good summary of what the program is. The 1033 program's roots line the drug war and was originally created in 1990 as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, which authorized the Pentagon to transfer military equipment to local law enforcement if it was, quote, suitable for the use in counter-drug activities. In the wake of September 11th, of course, the program's focus has expanded to include counter-terrorism activities as well. So again, our foreign policy, our um, the way that we were manipulated, honestly, after 9-11 has had such a negative impact on local law enforcement. And, and civilian policing has looked more like we're constantly at war with police, and it shouldn't be that way. So um, there was this great tweet that really like sparked my interest. Um, it's by a professor from uh, the University of Chicago. And uh, his name's Paul Post, and he says the following. Did Iraq and Afghanistan wars contribute to the militarization of U.S. police departments? Data are pretty clear. Surplus military equipment transferred to local law enforcement via 1033 programs steadily rose starting in the mid-2000s, followed by spikes in uh, 2010, right? So you can see in that graph that you... see the military weaponry really shooting up when it, no pun intended, by the way, uh, toward local law enforcement in the United States, because there's a surplus, there's a surplus, right? Raytheon needs an incentive to keep making these weapons. Lockheed Martin has an incentive to keep making this military uh, weaponry, uh, tanks, all of the supplies that we see being used abroad. And then they, the Pentagon ends up with a surplus. What do they do with the surplus? Where do they take it? They take it to the local law enforcement. Now, it also ends up in government agencies where you would think, hey, they have no business with any type of weaponry, much less military-grade weaponry. So, for instance, the Parks Division of Delaware's Department of Natural Resources was given 20 M16 rifles, 
while the Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Division obtained another 20 M16s, plus eight M14 rifles and 10 45 caliber automatic pistols. You know, because when you're protecting wildlife, things get things get rough. And you got to make sure you got all those guns and all the, all the weaponry to keep the fish safe. Um, also, when you look at Rhode Island, police in Johnston, Rhode Island, with a population of less than 29,000 people, acquired two bomb disposal robots, 10 tactical trucks, 35 assault rifles, more than 100 infrared gun sights, and two pairs of footwear uh, designed to protect against explosive mines. The Johnson uh, Police Department has 67 sworn officers. So just do the math. The amount of weaponry versus the number of people living in that area and the number of cops in that area. More than $5 billion in surplus equipment has been distributed to law enforcement agencies nationwide, including school police. Fun. Between 1997 and 2014. So look, the program 1033 was scaled back by the Obama administration. But there's a problem with relying on that method of political activism, because what happened when Trump got elected? Well, in 2017, he revived it. And of course, this uh, incentive structure continues. These weapons manufacturers continue making their weapons. We keep engaging in needless wars across the world. And we end up with the unending, never-ending supply of uh, weaponry. So I also want to just quickly talk about uh, what's being proposed, because right now we have various members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans in some cases like Rand Paul, who are arguing, okay, we just need to end the transfer, right? No more transferring weapons from the Pentagon to local police departments or schools or any of that. But the issue with that proposal is that we still end up with a surplus of weapons, because Raytheon and Lockheed Martin are still going to make them. We're still going to engage in these wars that we should not engage in. And where do those weapons end up? I fear that they're going to end up being sold, and we're already doing some of this now. They're going to be sold to other countries. And we're just going to pump more and more weapons around the world, which makes things less safe, less stable, and it really doesn't deal with the root of the problem. And how, how much of an incentive do these uh, private defense contractors have when it comes to engaging in these wars? Well, uh, there's a great study done by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And if you look at Lockheed Martin specifically, arms sales account for 88% of their uh, revenue. And for Raytheon, it's 94%. So they're going to keep lobbying. They're going to keep uh, pushing us toward more of these endless wars toward more of these um, conflicts that we do not need to engage in because they're looking out for their bottom line. And honestly, the stage was already set for this type of program to infiltrate our local police departments because the culture within our local police departments were already problematic to say the least. In fact, the culture really started changing um, in Los Angeles uh, during the so-called Watts riots. So this was in 1965, and that was the first time that the concept of SWAT teams came up. So there was a guy named John G. Nelson. He was a Marine who basically said, you know what, these riots were scary and serious. And so maybe we need to have, you know, a tactical solution to it. And that was when SWAT was first proposed. 
And then in the 1990s, that's when it was actually really implemented in the Los Angeles Police Department. And it was glorified, really, in all sorts of propaganda, including in um, video games. So there's one video game known as Police Quest. And I just want to show you what the commercials look like. Meet the men and women who risk their lives daily in the most violent city in the nation. L.A.'s SWAT specialists. We are a life-saving organization, and, and that's what we do most of the time. We use all of our tactics and all of our training to resolve a situation without hurting anyone. But sometimes uh, there's no way around that, and, and when that happens, it's, it's a suspect that uh, he decides the way it's going to end. Learn their tactical maneuvers. Witness their instinct for sensing danger. Follow their daring adventures in Police Quest 5, LAPD's SWAT. And by the way, um, Jacobin does so much, um, you know, so many important talks and work, and, and, and they're actually going to have a talk about the uh, Watts riots on Monday, so make sure you check that out. It's excellent. Um, everything that I've seen um, with these talks have been excellent. So just to get more in-depth information about what happened during the Watts riots, make sure you check that out. Um, but just going back to that culture that really um, started in the LAPD, you know, the police chief who pushed for uh, the formation of SWAT uh, was uh, a, a police chief who actually ended up retiring after the uh, Rodney King riots in the 1990s. Um, his name was Daryl Gates. And just check out this like braggy video where he was talking about uh, forming SWAT. Take a look. Uh, the acronym SWAT stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. Uh, when we originally came up with the uh, acronym SWAT, uh, it was going to be Special Weapons Attack Teams. And uh, that was my acronym. And uh, someone wiser than I was uh, said, no, you can't say attack. And when I thought about it, I thought, you're right. That is not what we want to project with SWAT. But that is exactly what they project with SWAT. So I just find it interesting because I think the way that uh, Gates wanted to uh, use the acronym was the honest truth. I think that's the way that he viewed SWAT. And then he was told to, you know, maybe rein in the language a little bit. But my point is that the culture was there already. And what the federal government did with the Pentagon program is essentially empower that vicious ideology where police aren't there to keep us safe. Police are there to see us as enemy combatants, as a threat, as individuals that need to, you know, be controlled through violent means. And that's why we need to not only end the Pentagon 1033 program, but really rethink our foreign policy and reconsider the apathy that I think this uh, country has been engaged in when it comes to our actions abroad. Because again, if we're disgusted with the way protesters are being treated in this country right now, we need to consider how civilians are being treated abroad because we've been maiming black and brown people for a long time now. And we need to consider that. We need to speak out and fight against that. And unless we change that system, 
we're not going to see better treatment of Americans here. That's yeah, that's awesome. I completely agree with everything you said. And that footage uh, from the video game ad was just incredible. And another thing to look at is the really direct relationship between the Pentagon, the intelligence community, police departments and Hollywood and video games and really the very direct propagandistic relationship uh, between those industries and just broadly speaking, say the national security state. And yeah, there's there's no way of separating uh, materially and um, even things like in the beginning couple of days of the protests when you would see uh, certain police departments very consciously, you know, doing these bizarre videos like dancing with the protesters or doing meals to try to neutralize uh, some of what was happening. And then, you know, of course, the videos emerged of occupying U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan using exactly the same uh, tactics as occupying armies. So these relationships are deep, um, of course, like on the material level with the literal artillery, but the overall structure of like what drives our foreign policy and how this stuff gets uh, spread in culture. So awesome. I, I love it. That Daryl Gates clip is... That's they had to get the PR shop in to be like, Daryl, it oh can't be what it is. <laughs> no, he was he out. was he was horrible, horrible. Yes. Like I've been reading about him a lot. And, you know, during the uh, Rodney King uh, protests and riots, you know, just going back to what you said earlier, Michael, the LAPD absolutely allowed the looting to happen. That was not an accident. You know, the looting was taking place for hours before the LAPD responded at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was part of the reason why uh, he retired immediately after that. It was just such a disgusting, um, you know, act by the LAPD. And the unfortunately, and I, I think we're going to talk about this more throughout the show, um, rather than use that as an opportunity to better the system, I think that things just further devolved and we saw more and more military grade weapons uh, sent to local police departments throughout the country. Yeah, exactly. That was fantastic. I hope everybody will follow up on every aspect of what you outlined there. And, you know, just actually following up on that, Anna illustrated the stakes of all of the implications of these of these issues um, that we're talking about. And the question of police murder and violence and the systemic issues that they're attached to, uh, people have been risking their physical well-being uh, for weeks to protest across this country uh, and protest some protesters. You know, a few lives have been lost. There's been serious injury. This is a serious act of politics that points to life and death issues and uh, with a certain kind of analysis gets to the heart of all of the inequities and brutalities that uh, define how we do capitalism and how we design this country's economy, as well as, of course, all of the legacies of racism and brutality connected to law enforcement. And so this is why I want to say it's very, very important now that what we have seen does not get channeled into a wave of HR politics and metaphysics, basically about sort of 
reducing all of this to people's individual attitudes, behaviors, or beliefs. We're talking about systems issues. We're talking about the completion of the far, infinitely far from complete 1960s rights revolution of actually codifying full and actual civil and legal rights for all, something that has been uh, being reversed and had been fought back against by the right ever since it had even been implemented legally in the 60s. Just in 2013, we saw the Roberts Court, as an example, gut the Voting Rights Act. And now look at how hard it is, as an example, to vote in Georgia. So we need to, in a substantive way, complete that mission. And we also need to connect it to, just as A. Philip Randolph did, and this is another really important Jacobin series you can watch, to a broader and fully integrated in terms of economics and social struggle for full equity in this country in a way that will necessarily have huge implications for policing because police have been deployed to manage and terrorize and control all of the sections of the population, primarily, of course, poor, working, and people of color who we have decided through policy mechanisms to deliver nothing for, to allow to live in ongoing deindustrialized, vicious racism, poverty, uh, and brutality with diminished job prospects, housing, and healthcare. Police are deployed consciously, and it is inseparable from gentrification, from all of the other issues that we talk about to understand police violence in that context. And I want to just uh, put up first, uh, this is a tweet, uh, a tweet from uh, Lester Spence, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Um, this is the moment when the energy from the protest shifts to diversity workshops, implicit biases, hires new academic units, and all this other stuff. All this other stuff shouldn't occur at the expense of the main thing. Let the main thing be the main thing. And I like that framing. Of course, and there is no question that implicit bias is real, that diversifying workforces is important, that the legal fight that has been gutted and undermined by numerous Republican administrations to fight against job discrimination using the strength of the federal government is absolutely essential. But the broader range here of what is implicated by these protests and the uprising against police terror goes to the core of how we actually distribute resources and do power in this society. I want to play a clip from Cedric Johnson, uh, who is an excellent scholar you can read on Jacobin as an example. This is from a talk he gave uh, about a year ago on what it would take to end the policing crisis. Right, this doesn't, this doesn't just go back to slavery, right? There's a tendency for some academics to focus on, like the paddy rollers, these guys who were sent around to capture runaway slaves and bring them back to the, to the owners um, because they wore badges that very much resemble the kind that, that police officers wear today. I think our problems are much later breaking. And I want to argue that they're deeply connected to the type of society we have and we're implicated in it, right? I don't want you to think it's just something, oh, these, these screwed up police over here. We benefit in some ways from that style of policing. Much of the lifestyle that we enjoy 
The class position that a lot of us enjoy is based on this policing that's happening in other places. So I want to think about this in two ways. The kind of policing we have begins in the post-war era, so right after World War II. And I'm going to use Los Angeles as an example because there are a lot of important things that happen here in this city. It becomes sort of the, the testing ground for um, what policing would become. And then I want to fast forward after that to uh, the period during the 1980s when it really intensifies. And that's when those numbers really begin to flip over where the majority of people are black and brown in a lot of prisons in certain states. Some people focus on the war on terror, but there's something else that we need to focus on, which is the taking back of the city, right? What's often referred to as revanchism, revenge. The investor class, suburbanites who now decide they want to move back, get a loft somewhere in the city. In order for that to happen, aggressive policing was part of the strategy to clear the ground of homeless people, clear the ground of the poor, move out the drug dealers, at least the ones who was black and brown and create the, the kind of space that would allow for real estate speculation and development. Okay, so, and I think, again, there's disputes about how much of, you know, what line of history we want to talk about here. And of course, there's scholars who've demonstrated the connection between the foundations of policing uh, in, in, in literally in enforcing slavery and the departments that have been deployed today. But there's a really important value, though, in also breaking it into its constituent parts and seeing that the modern phase of policing that we're talking about and dealing with is inseparable from the capitalist structure of city design today. And ultimately, again, and as we watch as this could go in two different directions, of a fundamental assault on class structure and white supremacy for serious policy outcomes and serious shifting of resources, or into a conversation which is in times very important, but necessarily limited about people's personal biases and beliefs inside specific structures. And I'm gonna just cite Cedric Johnson one more time here. He has a great piece in non-site that I'd recommend everybody read uh, called The Wages of Rodiger, Why Three Decades of Whiteness Studies Have Not Produced the Left We Need. And I'm going to just also conclude with one quote from this. Beginning with the New Deal establishment of the Federal Housing Administration and expansion after World War II under under Harry Truman, The U.S. embarked on a housing revolution, a process of mortgage lending, massive highways and infrastructure development and new home construction that transformed millions into nominal property holders and members of the new middle class. Suburban development and all manner of consumer activity propagated a consumer class identity, sweeping away old urban, ethnic and proletarian affinities and cementing the loyalty of more secure workers to the Cold War growth trajectory of defense spending, urban renewal, and suburbanization. Woven into the same process were policies that resegregated the black urban poor through through tower block housing, freeway construction, and practices like redlining, which combined to devalue and deter investment in in central city neighborhoods. Then, of course, in the clip, he talked about the reclaiming of the city for those same classes that had sort of been bought off through suburbanization. 
and that why that process of doing that is completely inseparable from understanding things that arose like broken windows policing. And the point of the broader argument here is, is that instead of sitting in middle-class spaces, to use the parlance, and talking about individual beliefs and tendencies, we need to get to the overall engine that has actually driven these policies and cost so much well-being and so many lives. This should needs to go in a material, not culturalist direction. I think you're absolutely right. And I really appreciate uh, how Cedric Johnson is, is emphasizing this. I haven't listened to your interview with him yet, um, but I'm looking forward to it. Because I think a, a common mistake I'm seeing among um, people who maybe aren't as immersed in this stuff as we are is... Th- with the police and its treatment toward the homeless, you know, the lack of resources toward affordable housing, that's not the bug, it's the feature, right? And I see a lot of people who are now very engaged in in what's happening. They're going to the protests, they, they're fired up about police brutality, but they're also pretty comfortable buying the downtown LA loft which then, you know, leads to the gentrification and then leads to the type of policing um, that we're talking about right now, the type of broken windows um, policing, pushing homeless people out. Um, and we're seeing it all throughout, you know, the area that I live in, Los Angeles. And, and so as Adolf Reed always says, I'm sorry to just but it's just exactly what you're saying, Anna, because it's like there's white identity, racist capitalism as personified by basically the Republican Party. And then this neoliberal democratic model, which still says you can have a completely unequal, vicious society that actually will still trap most people of color because of the disproportionate effects of distribution and class. But as long as you have proportional representation in the upper strata, then you've solved the problem and you haven't addressed the brutalities um, that, again, can just only be addressed by fundamental public good provisions, housing, healthcare, and all of those other public works, whatever. And it needs to go in that direction. And it's so concerning to me to see, you know, a very, very, very important impulse and conversation that needs to happen getting you know, it's going to, I could see it's going to turn into like upper middle class, like, you know, reading groups and like a new, like, you know, self-improvement project and not an interrogation about where resources actually are and how things are actually working. I acknowledge my privilege, but can I keep my money is not going to get us where we need to go. Yeah. You make an excellent point. You know, um, Inglewood, I think, is a is a really great example. So for all the Angelinos engaging in these protests, you know, I, I commend you for it. Awesome. But, you know, it's just it's interesting to see some of these people, you know, speak out against what's going on. And at the same time, they were the most vocal about, you know, real estate speculation, like engaging in the real estate speculation in Inglewood because they're building um, this new stadium. And so that has um, created a very unstable situation for people who've been living in Inglewood, California for decades. And I, I think this is such an important thing to focus on. And um, I, I want people who identify uh, at, with the left to just really pay close attention to this, because unless we change these uh, systemic issues, 
Um, we're going to run into the same problems over and over again. I- I'm really tired of the performative politics and the Absolutely. performative actions. All of a sudden, a conversation about the the, the, the the core drivers of our society. It's you know, it's it's another wave of of sort of you know of HR trainings and 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 Twitter garbage. We we need to do better. Or one of my heroes, uh, Cabral, claim no easy victories. I want to plug this book? All right. So I guess we're going to take a brief break and. Uh, we'll come back with uh, Shama Sawan. Welcome back to Weekends with Anna and Michael. Uh, joining us now, and we're very excited for this conversation, is Shama Sawant, who is a city council member in Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let me start off with a question uh, that I see a lot of people in mainstream media asking in, in a very fear-mongery way. Um, Seattle now has an autonomous zone. It's known as CHAZ, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And uh, that means that the uh, police have uh, vacated the precinct in that area. And uh, there is you know, a, a situation where activists have kind of taken over. And so I've seen it painted as a situation of lawlessness and anarchy and chaos. But when you watch videos uh, of what the scene actually looks like, um, it seems to be very different from what it's being described as. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, the, what's uh, come to be known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone right now is actually a zone of peace. And it's like a street fair. People are gardening there. Uh, but it's also a space that has resulted from a small yet significant political struggle as part of this nationwide and indeed global uh, era of rebellion against racism and against police violence. And what stands out here is the complete lies of the Trump administration, the right wing, you know, Lou Dobbs on Fox News, all of them, as you said correctly, Anna, you're mongering about what's going on here. But I'll tell you right now, this is a space for activists, for families with children. I, I see so many posts on social media of parents saying, I took my children here because I want them to learn about what is happening to black and brown communities, that, the, that there is a scourge of police violence and racism that we need to address. So it's all extremely positive. And what stands out here is the contrast that we have right now in the autonomous zone compared to what it was for eight days and maybe even over eight days. And it really is striking that since the first day of protest in Seattle in solidarity with the Justice for George Floyd protest on May 30th, we've had every single day and virtually every night just horrific violence from the police against the peaceful protesters. And I can bear a personal witness to this because I was there Sunday night 
at the autonomous zone. I mean, what's now the autonomous zone, but at that time was really like a war zone where uh, we were on the front line just a few feet from the police. The police were armed to the teeth with their riot gear, with their chemical weapons. I'm, I mean, this is no exaggeration. We saw this with our own eyes. And then we were having, one moment, we were having political conversations with so many of the young people who are organizing the protests. And the next moment, we were getting maced and tear gassed. And we had so many flashbang grenades thrown at the crowd. And the medic tent was targeted multiple times. So all of this violence was happening until the move, the peaceful movement was able to you know, really uh, be determined every night and then win this victory where they drove out the police from the East Precinct. Just to make a few points that you know, others may not know if you're not in Seattle, is the East Precinct where this autonomous zone sort of is you know, surrounding that East Precinct is not just any precinct. It's been, it's in the, uh, this is in the urban core of the city. This is in my district on Capitol Hill, which is the urban core of the city. It has a whole history of activism and gay rights movement and so on. And this has been the flagship police station of the Seattle police. And so the significance of this battleground, or even though it's just one battleground, is pretty important because uh, it's defeated the police and the political establishment. And the other thing that I should say on the ground is that this violence you know, we have to fight against Trump and the right wing, but this violence in the city against the protest movement was instigated at the orders of Democratic establishment Mayor Durkin. So it's no surprise that tens of thousands in Seattle are demanding that she resign. Can you talk uh, more specifically about the response? I like that you bring that up because one, when we talk about police violence, I think it's very important to know that this is actually an issue that hits every corner of the country. Some of the highest rates of, um, of, of frankly, just police murdering or you know killing uh, people are in, as an example, Alaska, Oklahoma, New Mexico. These are not, you know, and this is also, I think, one of the reasons and one of the very uh, inspiring aspects of this is that this is this these protests have actually been sweeping uh, small towns and rural America as well. It truly is a national uh, movement in that sense. And then, of course, yes, uh, you know, New York, L.A., and please speak to Seattle. Uh, these blue cities with, you know, a certain type of branding and position uh, have unleashed an extremely brutal response. So, you know, please speak to that and, and the actions you've taken. I mean, you have I have no doubt you are protecting people's well-being to the extent you can significantly because of the position you're in. Oh, there's no question about that. Uh, my office and my organization, Socialist Alternative, we are not only in complete solidarity with the movement right now, but you know, I've had this office for six years now in, on behalf of our movement. And what's striking is that every year, every year that we've been in office, our movement through the People's Budget Campaign has brought proposals, concrete proposals for defunding the police and redirecting those funds towards restorative justice, funding for homeless services. And every year, every year, the Democratic Party establishment has voted against it. I'm the only socialist on the city council. The rest of the Democratic, the, the Democrats and most of them are establishment council members. And unfortunately, even those who are well-meaning uh, don't really take it up to go up against the establishment because that's the kind of political courage you need to stand with the movement. You can't play both sides. You have to stand unambiguously with the community, with the black and brown communities that are being targeted. So if you look at the statistics, it's not only the violence that is being inflicted on the protest movement right now 
in cities like Seattle, Minneapolis, and, and other cities. And I completely agree with you, Michael. One of the main features of this uh, incredible rebellion that's happening is that it's truly nationwide. It's not just in the coastal cities, in the metropolitan areas. It's in the smaller cities as well. So anybody who is tempted to think that this is just some lefty thing like Fox News will, uh, will claim, it will be completely mistaken. This is actually something that has captured the imagination of an entire generation everywhere. In fact, one of the most moving moments I had was when I watched video footage of tens of thousands of people out there for Black Lives Matter in Boise, Idaho. So it really shows that people are grappling with the kind of system we have on offer and underlying the concrete demands that have been put forward by the movement for defunding the police, you know, by 50 percent or, you know, any any other thing, uh, the demands to ban chemical weapons and chokeholds. All of these measures, they reflect a search for a different kind of society. And obviously the movement needs to engage in that conversation. But what stands out is exactly what you're saying, which is that most of these cities where we've seen this protest uh, violence against protest movements, it's not the first kind of police violence. I mean, just to concretely give Seattle as an example, since 2011, 30 black or brown community members have been murdered at the hands of Seattle police. Not a single police officer has been prosecuted. And under the watch of the current mayor, Jenny Durkin, of those 38 of them happened under her watch. And again, not no action has been taken against the police. So there is a systematic and entrenched practice of impunity in the police departments. But it is not just the police. I mean, it would be a mistake to think that well, we're against police. But the police state is capitalism. Capitalism is a police state. So ultimately, what the police is, police forces are doing is uh, bidding and sort of the bidding of the big business backed establishment and of the billionaire class itself. And so uh, it, it shouldn't be a surprise to us then that despite the fact that the Democratic establishment, of course, is not the same as the Trump administration and the right wing and it, uh, no one would claim it and it, it would be incorrect to make that claim. But at the same time, these murders of black and brown community members and this violence against the protest movement has happened on the watch of the Democratic establishment, which re it was a reminder, again, that this is all tied to the capitalist system itself and the bitter reality that the Democratic establishment is just as loyal to Wall Street as the Republicans are and that our protest movements really need independent political representation. I mean, when you really think about it, uh, police have been used as private security uh, to protect the interests of the wealthy. I, I, what happened in New York City in response to Occupy Wall Street is a good example of that. I mean, J.P. Morgan Chase gave a giant sum of money to uh, the local police department. And immediately after that, I mean, the treatment of Occupy protesters was vicious uh, at the hands of the NYPD. Um, so there have been so many foreshadowing moments um, that have led us to where we are today. And, you know, since you mentioned um, your ideology and, and contrasted it with other members of the city council, what are the discussions like within the city council uh, when it comes to this autonomous zone, um, what the future holds for Seattle? Um, are there like debates, disagreements? I'm very curious to, to know how those discussions are going. Yeah, that's a very important point. I mean, you know, what we see is, first of all, just to give a background, this is some of the city council members are new, but they are nonetheless part of the establishment. And some of the city council members have been in office for several years. And so 
two years ago, the city council voted on a police contract that was blatantly racist and blatantly rolled back accountability measures that were hard fought for by the movement on the ground. And the entire black and brown community and those who are interested in social justice were pleading, absolutely pleading with the city council to vote no on that contract. And yet, even though that was happening, even though there was that demand from the community, even though the city council was majority people of color, I was the only no vote on that contract. Last fall, there was a vote on the city council on hiring bonuses. Can you imagine? This is a bloated police department. Our social workers, our educators are underpaid, have been for years. And there was a bill to offer hiring bonuses to attract cops into the police department. Again, I was the only no vote. And there are so many other women and people of color, women of color on the city council. So this is a, you know, it is a sobering reminder that it's our responsibility to inject into the movement's discussion because we have to understand whom can we put our faith in and, you know, who is going to be accountable to the movement's demands. And so what's happening right now, you know, in terms of the question you asked is these same council members and the same mayor who carried out this violence, the same council members who have betrayed the black and brown community year after year, they are now, you know, praising the autonomous zone, saying that this is a beautiful thing. They are embracing in words, the, and this is what we're seeing in the Minneapolis City Council as well, in words, they're embracing the demands of the community. There's a lot of what I would call happy talk happening in various city halls across the country where you see these establishment politicians saying, we need to reimagine the police department. We need to dismantle the police department. And, you know, we have to, we have to correctly recognize this represents the strength of the movement and the fact that these politicians are even forced to use these rhetorical flourishes itself shows that they are under pressure. So we should not be cynical about it. We should congratulate our movement's successes in come, having come this far. But in order for our movement to build itself, it's also important to recognize that we cannot have illusions in the same establishment that got us here in the first place. So uh, how can we win our demands and whatever they might be in cities, uh, different cities across the nation? And how can we actually educate ourselves in our movement to understand what is it that we are going to need to actually put an end to police violence? So to put it concretely right now, uh, you know, on Monday, actually, uh, I have two bills coming from my office uh, through our movement, of course, because my office is completely rooted in the movement. The two bills are one is to ban chemical weapons and the so-called crowd control weapons and the ban on the use of chokeholds by the police. Now, we have no illusions that simply passing a ban is going to be the end of the story, obviously. In fact, Eric Garner's life was not saved, even though there's a ban on chokeholds in New York. So it really shows that it's actually a, an ongoing and elevated, escalated political struggle that is going to change this system. But at the same time, what is incredible to see is that despite all this rhetoric that is being uttered by the council members on the front, in, you know, in front of cameras, in the backroom discussions, we know that they are doing everything in their power to in, an, in, an, in an attempt to undermine even minor things like banning chemical weapons. So given what's up, what we are up against, even something like a bill to ban chemical weapons could be of some historic significance because it, you know, it emboldens the movement to fight even further. But 
but that fight can be successful only if we know who's on our side and who's not and ultimately we cannot we cannot have the idea that defunding the police by 50% which is the demand that has come in the movement in Seattle and which my office has adopted our movement is fighting for it that is not going to be simple let's be clear it is going to need an absolutely fighting movement to win anything like that let alone something even bigger like an elected independently elected community oversight board with full powers over the police where com- the community can control the police you know hiring firing subpoena powers bringing police officers to justice ending the culture of impunity that pervades police departments everywhere and of course all of that has to go hand in hand with the understanding that the system itself is guilty and we need an alternative to capitalism i actually think as a policy level i just want to say i think civilian oversight board might actually be the most important thing in, in of reforms Absolutely. that are inside the context that we haven't sort of overturned the whole thing and you know in new york city uh people should look this up when david dinkins proposed a modest form of this there was a police riot like as in they rioted <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah. and Rudy Giuliani actually, launched not, not, his mayoral campaign at that rally. Right. Uh, so yeah. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but your what your story about David Dinkins just reminded me. I just read an article that the French police in France apparently have thrown off their helmets in an action of rage because they are against a ban on chemical weapons or something like that. Or chokeholds, I think. I yeah, think. no, they have, and 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 they're actually. Uh, th- well, this is a different dynamic in France. They're brawling with firefighters, so <laughs> they're they're still in a different <laughs> constellation than we are. But that being said, I, I you know I want to play a clip. Actually, we have of you making uh, some similar points in a really important and public way, um, and and about you know how these things actually happen, how you actually build power. And we're going to play this clip because it's a really good clip. And then I'm actually wondering if you could connect that with another significant struggle that you've had on the city council, which is basically just trying to pay, have Amazon pay tax. But here is what I want to share with some of you who may not know what happened. The city council at that time was majority people of color like me. And yet, I was the only no vote on that contract. We have to remember that, you know, what what builds the movement is not people who are in power that may look like you or me, but it's people who have shown through their actions that they are in solidarity with ordinary people and marginalized communities. So fantastic. And can you connect it with your fight with Amazon? I think that's a very important point you you brought up, Michael, because as Anna was saying earlier in the earlier segment, that uh, ultimately the, uh, the fight against police violence and racism is tied to the system that creates the racism and police violence. And in order for that struggle to really blossom in in a serious way, in in a way that can actually uh, make, uh, not only win the kind of reforms like you mentioned, and and I totally agree with you that winning an independently elected community oversight board is a very, very important demand, and it's not going to be uh, easy to win by any means, but that is where this movement 
needs to go and this is an important moment which we should not squander but at the end of the day it's like malcolm x said you know you can't have capitalism without racism and any system like capitalism which is meant you know the 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 goal of capitalism is to be uh, what it is right now it's not like capitalism is not working properly as some people might have us believe it's the goal of capitalism is to ensure that the vast majority of wealth remains in the hands of a very few at the top and the rest of us at the bottom the hundreds of millions of working people ordinary people poor people we are all the non beneficiaries of this system however uh, capitalism has an inherent problem in keeping that kind of system in equilibrium because it's inherently a disequilibrium so it requires that the rest of us who are at the bottom not be at the same level of oppression because then it's an immediate recipe for solidarity it's a very clear cut angle for solidarity and so it's in the interest of capitalism to inherently divide us along many factors you know divide us along race divide us along gender and sexual orientation divide us along national origin so it's not a coincidence that the same system that has created this specific brutality against black community members is also the same system that originated from having carried out a genocide against the native american population of the us it's the same system that is deploying this brutal organization ice and the border patrol against immigrants who are entering from other i mean other uh, countries so it it shows you that all of these different oppressions exist under capitalism not because it's some unfortunate ju- juxtaposition with other good features of the system or anything like that but because the system needs to divide us on along those lines and those divisions have to be sharp and those divisions have to be constantly reinforced because the idea of solidarity keeps popping up among those who are oppressed and that and to me you know of course as a socialist that's a message of uh, the tremendous confidence that that generates in my mind for the working class you know confidence that they that we as a working class will reach the right conclusions because despite the absolutely uh, brutal divisions that are created in our society and y- yet every single time you see multiracial movements emerging uh in every era so right now for example the protests that broke out in minneapolis and then have spread throughout the world obviously were led by the black and brown communities themselves who are facing the brunt of police violence and racism but they are very much multiracial and working class in character and this discussion you know it would be remiss if we didn't also mention how incredibly important it is that the labor movement is beginning to play a role but also all the the role that the labor movement needs to continue to play to just just to mention some concrete examples that have been important and inspiring is this bus driver named Adam Birch who also happens to be a member of the uh, Minneapolis Transit Workers Union and Socialist Alternative he declared on the very first days of the protest that he is refusing as a bus driver and a union member to bus protesters to jail because an injury to one is an injury to all that's the bedrock of the labor movement and that we, there is no prospect of winning racial justice if we don't have that kind of solidarity among the working class and that led to the ATU president there Ryan Timlin helping to bring the international together in issuing a very strong statement we had the Minneapolis teachers issue the statement Minneapolis nurses 
And right here in Seattle, there's something exciting happening. You know, the Seattle Police Officers Guild, which is a reactionary force, not, I mean, in, in our view, not part of the labor movement, has been affiliated with the Fraternal Order of the Police, which is very closely linked with Trump and the dangerous right wing. That has been part of our local AFL-CIO, local labor council. Now there's a real move, real push among rank and file and the leadership of many unions to push the Police Officers Guild out of our labor movement. And so the Seattle Educators Association and the union, UAW 4121, the union that represents graduate student workers at the University of Washington, which is a large public employer here, though both those unions have overwhelmingly voted to kick the Police Officers Guild out of the Labor Council. And that vote is going to be taken by the delegates of the council on Wednesday. So it is a very important vote, and it go, needs to go beyond that. So it's important that, for example, the longshore workers here have declared that they're going to do a walkout on June Juneteenth. So we need those actions to escalate. We need workplace actions. We need unionizing struggles of the warehouse workers at Amazon and, you know, much more than that to build the kind of solidarity that you're referring to. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. I, I only have one final question um, because it's it's really inspiring to hear you speak as candidly as you do um, about your beliefs, your ideology. You probably call yourself a socialist. And I like that you really do emphasize the importance of labor in, in pushing for real change in this country. Um, but there's no question that we also need uh, leadership um, in, you know, various, uh, congressional seats, uh, on a local level with the city council. And I know that for you specifically, um, Amazon funded a pretty aggressive fight in order to get you, um, out of the city council. Can you talk a little bit to the audience, maybe some, um, young members of the audience who are thinking about, uh, getting involved in politics, uh, what they can do to fight back against that system, because I know how vicious it is. I've seen it with uh, some of the progressives who have attempted to get elected into Congress. Um, what kind of advice would you give to them? Right. And I'm sorry, I, I know the question was about Amazon and I veered off into no, the it, labor you did movement. It, you did it better. That was a rare example of a politician making a question better by not answering it. <laughs> thank you. I, I appreciate that. But I will connect you to Amazon and Anna. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, you're right. I mean, last year, so just actually a little bit more background. In 2018, on the heels of having won the historic $15 minimum wage and a whole host of renter rights victories, our movement was really gaining momentum uh, along, the, along the question of stopping the sweeps of homeless uh, neighbors, but also on the burning question of housing affordability, which has become completely untenable, and, and Seattle is hardly the only city. This is now a nationwide phenomenon of metropolitan areas of housing becoming completely unaffordable and gentrification, as you mentioned earlier. And so there was real momentum for the Amazon tax, which is a tax on big businesses like Amazon, but not just Amazon, a very, very modest tax in order to generate annual funds so that we can have a major expansion of social housing. I could not emphasize it enough Social housing and rent control are extremely important uh, reforms that we need to win uh, because they will. That those are those are the kinds of demands. That those are the kinds of changes that will actually begin to make a dent in the racist gentrification that we have seen. Where the and, and it's it's it, and it goes you know disproportionately affecting communities of color. But the entire working class is being pushed out. I mean. 
construction trades workers in here will tell you that they build these shiny buildings and then they drive off miles away because they can't afford to live here because the rents are sky high. And so there's so much solidarity around the idea of the Amazon tax, you know, going back to 2018. And I'm not sure how many of your uh, viewers know, but at that time, our movement won a unanimous vote on admittedly a small tax. But less than a month later, the Democratic establishment on the city council had overturned it. They repealed the tax. I mean, that, is, that was the single most shameful moment of this uh, establishment here. Uh, but since then, you know, so, so what happened after that on the heels of that victory for Amazon, and that was when Amazon threatened and bullied the city. And that was when the repeal happened. They thought they were coming into 2019 with uh, enormous strength. And they were very confident that they were going to uh, defeat our re-election campaign, our re-election to uh, re-elect a socialist. And that was our second re-election campaign. And they poured in millions of dollars, all kinds of attack ads with all kinds of racist and sexist tropes, lies, misinformation. And yet, despite all of that, our movement was able to win, re-elect re this socialist city council seat. It really shows how much people are fired up for a real change. And so, uh, you know, fast forward to the George Floyd protests. And in the last 10 days, we are attempting to get the Amazon tax uh, proposal in on the ballot so voters can directly vote on it in November if the city council betrays us yet again. But what's incredible is in the last 10 days during the George Floyd protest, this uh, campaign for the ballot signatures has gained 12,000 signatures. And they're, you know, it's still going strong. Uh, people are out there collecting signatures, which really shows that people are uh, deriving this clarity that uh, the only way we can push forward for a society free of racism is also to fight on these demands and that they are not separate that the demand to tax Amazon is very much a uh, demand to uh, put, you know, uh, really defeat, begin to defeat uh, the gentrification in our city, to really have a measure against the escalating homelessness. And you know, I just want, would like to end this point on on the reference that Anna made, which is that you know, we there's a long and ugly history of the use of police forces and different paramilitary forces, private secure, so-called private security forces, not only against protest movements, not only against communities of color, but there's a long history of these forces. This is, you know, this is the police state under capitalism of them being used against labor struggles, against struggles for economic justice. And so it is so crucial that those, those, uh, those connections are being made in people's minds. And uh, I think that I don't I don't think that there's ever a straightforward way for movements. You know, movements will have ebbs and flows. Movements will have to learn lessons. Uh, but I think the Occupy movement did provide a real lesson for many people in the movement that the police are not your friends. The police state is not on your side. We have to build independently and we have to really bring in the message of working class unity, because that's the only basis on which we will have economic and racial justice. Shama Sawant, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate you and uh, and your work and, and everything else. Um, stay strong, stay safe. Thank you so much. And you all stay safe as well. Thank you. Anna, what I was yes. surprised by 
was that Shama Sawant didn't have kente cloth on. Well, I mean, are you really an activist if you you don't dress the part? I get that she's trying to like push through these moves in the city council, but I didn't see a knee. I didn't see it didn't coming see to a, I didn't see it coming to America outfit. Very heavy on the substance. And um, from what I've seen in political activism in America, uh, you need to lessen that and focus more on like the optics, you know, the aesthetics of activism as opposed to the substance, I thought she which would is be what Democrats Twitter. are really good at doing, by the way. Yeah. I thought she'd be on Twitter, like monitoring who likes like Howard Stern or something. Or if they <laughs> laughed at like a joke in 2011. I thought that was right. how this happens. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So, uh, so like just to juxtapose what we like the super substantive and important discussion that was just taking place, you know, Democrats have decided establishment Democrats have decided to go in a different direction. And it honestly didn't surprise me, but nonetheless, it still embarrassed me. And it was the uh, kneeling stunt that congressional Democrats engaged in. I believe we have a uh, quick clip um, showing a little bit of that. And I'm going to look away because honestly, it's so embarrassing that I don't even like you have to look it. with me, Anna. This is no, this is this is a joint venture here. I'm not the only one. All right. And of course, everybody, this is the salt segment. We might take one or two of your super chat questions after this. Uh, but this is the salt segment. This is the Democratic leadership who have done absolutely nothing to keep people in their homes, as an example, who've done nothing systemic on policing, dressing like uh, what their version of what they think in their heads is, I don't know, like the Howard graduation of like 1995 or something. Look, let's look at this together, Anna. All right. <laughs> oh my Jesus God. Christ. <laughs> think we can take any more of this uh no so so who i have to say too just on a on a very basic human level like seeing like an 80 year old trying to hold that is also super uncomfortable so like there's the innate definitely like you're seriously putting chuck schumer in a kente cloth okay and then there's like who's gonna help all these fucking old people off of the ground (laughs) Totally. It's just, but Michael, honestly, like really think about it. This didn't go over well. And I was actually happy to see that there was a consensus. Yes. Right. Most people found it um, cringeworthy. And I I like that because that's where we need to be. Yes. But think about Nancy Pelosi's mentality, really. I mean, she's been rewarded over and over again for her performative politics. Like, oh, did you guys see that sarcastic clap? It was incredible. Wow. She's so strong. 
Did you see her rip up Trump's speech? Wow. Okay, ripping up Trump's speech does nothing. It does nothing. It's it's theater, and I'm not interested in it unless it's a way to uh, push toward actual substantive change. But of course, that's not what she does. It's it's just like the cheap brownie points that she's been given um, over and over again. So of course, she would think that this would go over well. And I'm happy that it didn't because... People are sick and tired of the system that we're currently operating under. We need change and no one's buying this like kneeling stunt that they did. No, I agree with you completely. And I mean, that's been the whole story of Nancy Pelosi is, you know, just substantive nothing or substantive harm. I mean, literally, as an example, not doing paycheck protection uh, in their symbolic version of a bailout bill. Like the one we already know is going to get gutted in the Senate. They can't even do, let's pretend we support these things that would be popular to run on theoretically. But again, I always, you know, the subtitle of Adolf Reed's of class notes is one of it is, I think is posing as politics. And I, and I think this is also honestly one of the reasons too, though, why I also, even people with infinitely better politics than Nancy Pelosi, why I'm just so allergic to the substituting of sloganeering and online like posturing and positionality with how do we actually do things here when we have as an example you know an extremely weak left a decimated labor movement and even when movements arise with that are absolutely correct and there's an enormous amount of courage and an enormous amount that that could, you know, potentially flow in the right direction. They're going to get, you know, co-opted or, 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 or marginalized or, you know, turned into HR politics versus economic politics versus political economy. So, you know, there is actually a way in which I think you see this and it's disgusting and it's embarrassing and totally it's an encouragement that most people perceived it that way. But it's also like, this has been what a lot of left and liberal politics has been for quite some time, you know, like, let's just do some performativity and, you know, you know, maybe we could, you know, do this or that like kind of, you know, posture. And so I think, you know, we should make fun of this and we should also use it as a through line to see how we can get out of that trap, you know, generally, um, yeah, Completely. absolutely. You're 100% right. And, and you know, in terms of policy that came along with that performance, understand that what they proposed was symbolic. Um, it's not something that they even think they could pass. It's not something that I see them fighting for. So if you're going to propose something symbolic, why not go all the way, right? Like, why not be aggressive and, and make take a stand? that demonstrates that you're genuinely different from your Republican colleagues on the issue of policing. And even then they couldn't do it. For instance, when it came to uh, the Pentagon shipping military grade weaponry to local police departments, they're like, we'd like to limit it. <laughs> yeah. We'd like Why? To. What do you mean? Limit? What limit? Limit is not enough. What, is, what does that even mean? Right. We would like to We're, put the ban it. We'd like to put the yeah. color scheme of the African union on the great grenade launchers that we're giving to local police departments. 
honestly, I would not put it past. We that. would like it's to just, drape like, the chemical weapons that police departments use on protesters with kente cloth, and uh, <laughs> so you have to write a lived experience diary after you murder somebody. Sorry. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, like they like. If symbolism is all they are going to do, at least try to get that right. And they, they can't even do that. You know, that's, it's just so embarrassing. And really it, it goes back to, yes, you're right. I mean, the left right now in terms of power doesn't have much. And most of that power is really going to come from workers demanding more. I mean, think about how significantly the conversation has changed when it comes to police brutality from just a few months ago. And it's because people took to the streets. They demand change, right? It's not because AOC, you know, says that police brutality is serious and we need to do something about it. There's some value to that, but that's not going to get it done. We need to apply pressure. Otherwise, these representatives have no interest in really representing us. Absolutely. Um, Do we have, I think Kale is going to read us uh, one or two super chat questions, and then we're going to wrap up. But of course, we'll be back next week, uh, everybody. Kale, do we have anything from the super chat? Kale is joining us now. Kale Brooks, super uh, producer, um, Svengali, scripter of everything we say. If you don't like it, you can't even find him on social media. That's actually part of why he stays off of social media. Um, so if we say anything that's, you know, you want to bitch about, it's all Kale. Yeah, send it to the P.O. box, the Jacobin yeah. P.O. box. Exactly. Um, so we have, uh, looks like right now we have two questions. One of them from legendary rapper LL Cool J, although cool. I don't think it's actually him. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to presume this uh, user's actual identity or individuality. Um, he or she or they write any predictions on where the country will be in October. And I would just add to that because uh, you hear, you know, typically from, I mean, you hear it certainly online on social media from kind of liberal corners that uh, Trump's not going to allow there to be an election. Um, you hear some leftists say that too, honestly, that uh, whether it be because of the defunding the post office or by some other means. And I guess just your general thoughts on where you think we're headed the economy, COVID, the election uh, oh in October, and then, yeah, just all of it, I guess. <laughs> wow, you, you, you really took that one. Uh, where, do, where are we headed, Anna? Well, I think, okay, so let me, let me address two things, um, the first being the election, the second, the economy. I'll start with the economy because I think that's an easier question to answer in terms of predictions. Um, we're headed in a bad place. Uh, we're already in a terrible place. And what is likely to happen is the jobs that were lost during the pandemic, at least around 40% of them are not coming back. Um, there have been various studies uh, showing that that's the case. A lot of these uh, major corporations have used the pandemic as an opportunity to think about ways to downsize. And um, based on the analysis done by various economists, it's unlikely that 40% of these jobs are going to come back. At the same time, there is a devastating level of inaction among Congress. 
Uh, any attempt to pass another round of stimulus that actually helps ordinary Americans gets blocked by Mitch McConnell in the Senate immediately. And so that type of obstruction by Republicans has been disastrous. And even with the stimulus that we've received, it clearly was not enough. Um, and it uh, redirected, redistributed more wealth, more money to the very top. So I, I don't have any positive feelings about where we're going to be in the fall when it comes to our economic situation for ordinary Americans. Um, the mass media is going to continue focusing on the Dow, yep. which is completely disconnected from uh, the reality and, and the lives of the vast majority of Americans. So that's where we are. Um, with the election, honestly, I, I don't know. And I am one of those people on the left who was concerned about Donald Trump um, you know, defunding the post office in order to rig this election in his favor. We already know that he's been trying to fight back against any efforts to push for mail-in voting um, in various states. So the only, and this is so sad, the only positive thing that I saw this week when it came to the election was that the um, chairman for the Joint Chiefs of Staff spoke out against Donald Trump. And really, the only way that Donald Trump could live out his uh, dictator fantasy is if he gets the military on his side. And I'm happy to see all these military generals speaking out against him unequivocally. Um, that's that's a good sign. But I really wouldn't bet money on any type of prediction about the election. I don't know where we're headed, and it's terrifying. I, I totally agree uh, with what you said about the economy. I I look. I think voter suppression, voter disenfranchisement is an ongoing and very serious issue. And in gutting the post office is also, you know, an ongoing anti-labor issue, right? An anti-poor issue, an anti-black issue as well. And that's been something they've been pushing for for a long time. I think there will be an election. And I think Joe Biden's going to win. Like, I, I actually think it's really important um, to really not lose sight of the fact that for for better in some ways, I mean, better relative to Trump and then for worse compared to all of the things that we need to do in this country, there is a real normalcy uh, desire out there. And it cuts across uh, demographics, age groups. Um, there is an, an especially really what Biden is kind of putting forward, which is, look, I get it on some level that some things are untenable. So I'm going to try to ease the burden a little bit, obviously in, in no way that's, you know, uh, up to the level of the problem. And then honestly, you know, <laughs> just as I, 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 I think like, look, I think there's, there's like this kind of like woke thing that will never latch on to like a, a huge uh, segment of the country. And we've critiqued that kind of politics a million times for a million reasons. And I stand by all of those. I think there's really important, frankly, like socialistic policies that we have yet to sell or persuade, or I would or arguably create the material context for getting into place. So I think that a lot of people um, and, you know, you see it in all these like contradictory data, like more people are recognizing, wait a second, policing is completely out of control. It's it is racist. It is bigoted. It is violent. And then at the same time, 
there's absolutely no appetite for like a defund as an example. And I think those contradictory impulses lead to basically, you know, honestly and depressingly, just this total vindication of the Joe Biden campaign from the beginning. It's just like, I'll calm things down and things will get normal. And I think that's where a lot of the electorate is at. On the other hand, the last thing I'll say, we'll talk about this more. There was this new, very disturbing Pentagon war game scenario, kind of comical, but like this idea that they're anticipating basically the Zoomer generation kind of in a process of sort of like ongoing unrest. Um, and I, all, I, I see that as well. I mean, I, I, I think there's going to be ongoing protests, objections, and the hope and the strategy is that that congeals into something like, you know, a mass labor movement that is fit for purpose for our time uh, as an actual countervailing source of power. It's obviously not there yet, but we'll see. Yeah, just one thing to add to that. I'm so impressed by the Zoomer generation. So impressed. But it, but it makes sense because... You know, the millennial generation, um, you know, really started uh, taking the economic hit uh, because of these neoliberal policies and Zoomers have it worse. And I think that they realize, like, unless we do something and take to the streets, nothing's going to change. And so I'm super impressed by them and inspired by them. I love it. I love seeing this political activism and more importantly, like just how unbelievably informed they are. Uh, about the world around them and why things are the way they are. It's, it's super impressive. Well, so just following up on that last question, actually, uh, Bigelow Yamo, I want to say, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Someone on, on YouTube is uh, saying that they also think that Trump looks likely to lose in November. And so they want to know what you guys think the trajectory of the Republican Party looks like in a post-Trump era. Um. I think there's going to be a really contradictory impulse because I think that the, you know, some elements of the Republican Party are going to be, you know, see an example to try to become more like aesthetically respectable again. And so they will try to suggest that, you know, the the crazy rhetoric and some of the more like kind of overt bigotry is a thing of the past and also just in general you know, try to say, hey, well, that was like a weird freak accident and he's a failure and completely, you know, dodge the fact that not only do they share completely, in in fact, to the extent they don't share the same policy agenda, it's Donald Trump randomly being better than they are, at least rhetorically, right? Like to the extent there's any daylight between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, it's that Donald Trump might occasionally say everybody deserves health care. But on the other hand, I think, how you build a Republican party of the future and that kind of like, you know, basically like sort of like middle-class white identity crisis being filtered into sort of like cultural aggrievement. I, I don't, I just don't see any other basis for appealing to voters other than some form of Trumpism. Right. Like, and And there's some, like, I think Josh Hawley, even though he's not particularly charismatic, I think he's one to watch because he's somebody who's definitely able to, you know, quite easily kind of on certain issues, sort of like out fake populist Democrats. And that's going to be substantive. Tom Cotton is really just like an authoritarian neocon. 
again, uh, disgusting, disturbing guy. He's got like zero charisma. And this is also helpful. Like you're talking about none of these people that want to sort of like ape any of that have what Trump has. They don't have any of his weird charisma. But I, I just think at the end of the day, like I don't see, you know, this fantasy that there's some like big segment of the country that's just like, you know, would you pretend to respect MLK while handing the country over to Wall Street and the Koch brothers is just not such a huge constituency. So some version of what he's hit on is going to continue. I think you're so right about that. We need to watch out for the Tucker Carlson model. Yeah, really. Because uh, Tucker Carlson is, I I think, a, a very good example of an effective communicator pretending to have this populist message, pretending to be concerned about the material needs of Americans, and then immediately pivoting toward people of color are the enemies, uh, immigrants are the enemies, we need to ramp up the police state, we need to ramp up our foreign policy. That's who Tucker Carlson is. And if more and more Republicans adopt that ideology, or at least that framing, um, I think we're actually in a lot of trouble. We need to fight back against that. We need to debunk it as much as we can. Totally. I I agree. And I mean, the last thing I'd say, too, is I also think it's going to require a much more, you know, like we always talk about like the three step process. So like Tucker Carlson absolutely is a xenophobe and a bigot. A hundred percent. Now, just saying that over and over and over again without going through the real conditions that he's speaking to and also even seeing the terms that he speaks in, because I think this is another thing that happens like. In this case, people on the left, liberals and socialists or whatever, who can see through how he's constructing the argument, the the racism and xenophobia, it's it's there. There's no question. That's not a case where it's getting, you know, projected in or there's a different cultural interpretation. It's 100 percent there. But still, for a lot of people who, who watch it again, they would say, wait a second. He you know, he painstakingly said American citizens of all backgrounds. He painstakingly tried to you know, point out that this wasn't a quote unquote uh, race thing, even though, again, in his case, just absolutely is. But we need to be able to, you know, again, just sort of repeating again and again and again that he's a bad guy is not going to do the trick at all with somebody who's such an effective operator, especially when, you know, and the other big danger that we have is that there isn't, there will be a right wing populist outlet in corporate media, because at the end of the day, even though right-wing populism might make some great sounding critiques of corporate power and inequality, they're not pro-union and they are not talking about fundamental uh, income redistribution. I mean, it's really funny. Like when you press, like Red Scare had Steve Bannon on and what was so funny was that like, it was like at a certain point, you're starting to realize like, okay, he kind of just sounds like a Clinton Democrat in some ways. Like he is unlike the other Mm -hmm. Republicans, somewhat willing to say, yeah, we should raise taxes a little bit. Right. So, and then of course, like in the, you know, neoliberal area, there's just going to be like, you know, it's going to be again, the Adolf Reed description, no systemic change, but a representation of diversity at the top. If you're coming with a pro union, universal multiracial socialistic politics that is never you know that is still just fundamentally materially the marginalized position because that's the only one that threatens systemically incumbent power so we got a lot of fights on our hands and i agree with you i mean 
Tucker specific, like Tucker is like the best communicator after Trump and the Republican Party. So I, I totally agree. I think so, too. I totally agree. Yeah, I think that point is so important. Um, and there's another question kind of around uh, rhetoric and how we talk about uh, demands. But before that, I also just wanted to read out Jerry Ty wrote, love Anna and Michael. Their sober, thoughtful analysis keeps me sane these days. So thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. Um, Thank you. Um, Angel writes, how can we put a finite explanation on defund the police? So again, I think the, you know, I, I'm interpreting this of how do we understand or how do we explicate better the, the demand as a movement? And there's maybe some question of agency there of who's doing the explanation. But I guess your thoughts on how we can better explain what uh, what we mean by defund the police. I mean, Anna, go ahead. But I just want to just say, like, I think we can explain what we mean by that, literally. There are right. tons of people doing this work, and including people that, like, we might have disagreements with, but they have pioneered, as an example, the abolition model, which is definitely different than defund. So I, I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, it's very important and not just for like being PC or whatever, but like literally we don't speak for a movement. We don't speak for people who pioneered this work, but anyways, yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, Look, this is defund the police is the slogan. Um, we can't go back in time and change it. But in the future, um, I think we can learn lessons from the way Republicans, conservatives brand things. If they were to brand this, they would do it as empower good policing. Something like that, right? Totally. Think about how <laughs> yeah. they name their organizations. Like, for instance, the one I always love to bring up is focus on the family. Like, I love my family. Yeah. I want to focus on the family. That sounds great. It's it's a terrible organization. It wants to do away with all sorts of liberties and freedoms that women have. It's horrible. But they know how to brand it in a way that doesn't immediately turn people off. In fact, it brings people in and makes them want to know more. And so... Um, you know, empowering good policing, something like that, I think, because what I think, and it really does vary based on which city you're in. And you're right. I'm not speaking for an entire movement, um, but I have my own interpretation um, and what I would personally like to see. And so I don't want to get rid of police completely. Right. But what I do want is to have a form of policing where the individuals who take these jobs are well-paid, okay, and qualified. They go through the psychological testing. They don't have criminal backgrounds. Many cops get hired after criminal convictions. Like, it blows my mind. And so, you know, framing it in a way where you empower the good cops, I think, um, would be a little more effective. But that's just my take on it. Yeah, um, for me, um, and and I'd actually really, you know, I, I don't, of, as of now, I definitely don't have an abolitionist position and there's there's reasons for that. But I would really look up like that specific argument is being very specifically made by, you know, like uh, prison culture, you know, who she has a, an op ed in The New York Times. Uh, someone who I've interviewed a lot, uh, Malika Jabali or, you know, you know, Vital's work. So I want to just cite those people for me. Uh, community oversight boards uh Huge. I actually, I honestly, in the context of like working in the political reality we have now, I think that is so essential. And it's a question of 
democratic accountability that does not exist for police. Um, that's number one. I think, of course, there can be serious budget cuts. Um, and I would talk about it as a redeployment and redistribution of resources uh, to you know, public works, education, housing. I think there's an interesting conversation about splitting up or like, you know, policing in constituent parts. Cause I really do, you know, I do think it's a major problem that, you know, yeah, like I don't, somebody's having like a serious mental health episode. It, it is really wrong to have like armed law enforcement responders going to that and wrong, like on the spectrum, it's most glaringly wrong and horrifying because police do kill people in this situation. And that's just sickening. And it's also even wrong down to the completely different end of the spectrum of, you know, this cop did a decent job in this situation and it really isn't their role. Um, and it really, you know, and so I, I think, um, and then, yeah, look, I think ultimately when you go towards, you know, really de-policing society, I think as Councilwoman Sawant was saying, and again, this in no way undermines like all and all of the military bans and tear gas bans and all like all of that stuff needs to be done. I think ultimately, you know, if you that 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 seriously undermining police power is going to have to do with seriously undermining capital power and it's going to come through that route. But all of that stuff out of the gate, like there is no reason why cities can't be saying like, Wait a second, we're going to have austerity and an economic crisis, but you have $6 billion for a completely undemocratically accountable paramilitary? No. Um, so, yeah, those are some things that I would focus on uh, for me, uh, you know, in, in what my position is, which, you know, again, is, is not representative of actually either like people who are really pushing nothing substantive, but have like the branding behind them or people who have a for real abolitionist position, which people should read up on and study and see if it makes sense to them. It's important work out there. Do we have any others, Kale? Yeah. Um, so maybe just one more, I think. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Someone, uh, they don't have a uh, screen name, so it's just question mark, question mark. But they asked, um, it's eviction month, would that fuel the protests? So, um, you know, we've seen in New York, the, the protests have kind of, tempered down a bit, at least since, since when they kicked off uh, the beginning of the month. But with, you know, the fact that there's 40 million people who are unemployed right now, the fact that, you know, rent is due and people don't have income coming in right now, the ban on evictions is ending uh, in many states right now. Does that put more fuel to the fire? Will we see the protests ramp back up? Or have we already seen kind of the height of, of what's coming? I mean, it's, it's totally speculative, but if you guys have any thoughts on that. I would say yes. And I actually hope it happens because if it doesn't, uh, Congress will do nothing. I can guarantee that. I absolutely guarantee that. Um, the end of July is quickly approaching. Uh, that's when the unemployment benefits will expire. Uh, that's when uh, you don't have any type of protections, whether you have a mortgage or you're paying rent. And you know, it's it's funny. I, I was having a debate with someone I know about uh, the protests taking place now. And she asked, you know, in, like in a very snarky way, like, don't these people have jobs? And I was like, actually, no, they don't. There's tens of millions of people who don't have jobs right now and have not received 
the economic relief that they desperately need in order to just like provide for the basics. And she didn't have anything to say after that. And so if members of Congress think, oh, well, there's, you know, absolute chaos in the streets now, I, I, I actually do think that the protests will ramp back up if they continue to do nothing and be the ineffective, feckless embarrassments that they are. Absolutely. And I, there, and, 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 and I think it's very important that in addition to a movement on police terror, there needs to be a movement on housing. There needs to be a movement on the core economic demands of any decent society. And, you know, what I think is so gross, and I think it's something actually, again, to really bear in mind with people, you know, with uh, sort of left politics and that desire that most people have for normal, quote unquote, a lot of a desire for a certain kind of normal is super healthy. Like, you know, like, like was and like we were talking about a couple weeks ago, it's like, yeah. You'd like to live in a neighborhood where you're not racially terrorized by the police so you can, like, have a barbecue, watch sports, drink a beer. And also more generally, like, I I think it is true, actually, in contrast to some sort of, you know, certain ways that people approach politics very obsessively that it's like, yeah, I think a lot of people, if, you know, police weren't terrorizing them, if people are in their homes, they have jobs, they have sustenance and protection during a pandemic, they would like to enjoy their lives as they see yes. fit uh, in whatever way that looks, super conventional, super counterculture, whatever, it doesn't matter. I don't care about any of that shit. That That is all like, I'm actually very properly libertarian in that. Like that is not, the, the core of my politics is the material needs met and the democratic accountability available so people can just sort of like do their own thing and flow in, in their own way. And I, and I think it's incredible that we are in such a phase of extraction uh, and aggressive extraction that there isn't even the, the, uh, the sense of like, you know, I mean, you could say cynically like buying people off, but it's not happening. So of course people are going to be out a lot more. Um, I guess that's it uh, for this week. Thank you for those really good super chat questions. Anna, we all missed you so much last week. Thank God you're back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was good to be back. Um, I love this show. I love you guys. Um, Thanks for supporting it. Um, If you're not subscribed yet, please subscribe to the Jacobin uh, YouTube channel. Um, And make sure you click on that little bell that you see on YouTube because that's how you get notified um, about any updates to this show and the awesome lectures that Jacobin has on a regular basis, including the one on the Watts riots um, that'll take place on Monday. It's awesome. There's a whole archive there. You could watch the stuff on the minor plan and Sweden. There's one on the IRA, which I loved. Of course, Adolf Reed, a Philip Randolph, Torrey Reed. I mean, come on. It's, it's, just an insane amount of great content. And of course, subscribe to Jacobin Magazine as well. Thank you, Kale. Thank you, Anna. We'll see you guys next week. See ya.